What happened during the Opium Wars? What was China's relationship like with Japan and Western countries like the United States and Great Britain? Who is Chiang Kai-shek? Who is Mao Zedong? How did China become a communist nation? We will learn the answers to these questions and more in today's episode, part one of the last 100-ish years in China. Welcome to Wiser World, a podcast for busy people who need a refresher on all things world. Here we explore different regions of the globe, giving you the facts and context you need to think historically about current events. I truly believe that the more we learn about the world, the more we embrace our shared humanity. I'm your host, Ali Roper. Thanks for being here. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back. I am so glad to be continuing the miniseries, which consists of a brief overview history of the last 100-ish years in a few countries that I think we really need more background information on. And last time we covered Ukraine, and today we're going to do China. Next up, we have Taiwan, Iran, North Korea, and then we'll do the Middle East. And I am real excited about doing China today. A few things before we start. First, I just want to thank everyone who has shared and reviewed so far. You guys, people are listening to this podcast. When I started, I honestly had no ambitions. I just wanted to do it. And having people listen and send me texts and messages and share it and review has been a really happy thing in my life. So thank you so much. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast on your favorite app or signed up for my email newsletter, please do. My email newsletter hasn't come out yet, but it will be the way that I announce when I drop new episodes and also information on books and just ways, resources that you can use to help you study further. Links for all of these things are in my bio on Instagram and also in my show notes. Lastly, I will be referring to Stalin and the Soviet Union often during these episodes because China and the Soviet Union intersect at many points in history. So please go back and listen to the Russia episodes if you haven't done that, since I will not be re-explaining the Soviet experience again to give you context. I also want to add um, that some of the materials in these episodes is pretty heavy. There is some violence and entire wars are fought over a drug called opium. So just know that I would screen this to be sure it's the right maturity level for your kids and teenagers. And I just want to put that out there right from the start. All right, let's talk about China. A few things to start off. The first is that China is quite the place and has incredible history. When it comes to written history, the United States, at least to me, it just feels like this little baby nation. China has thousands of years of history that is documented in some way or other. It is astounding. I actually traveled there when I was a teenager, and it is still hands down the country that changed my perspective on the world the most. China is immense, and these episodes are just barely scratching the surface. The second thing is that China can be tricky to do research on for a lot of different reasons. Probably the number one is that the Communist Party archives, which are enormous, have been restricted for years, and only historians with Communist Party credentials have been invited in, and the new laws open up tons of archives, and then they get access to them, and then they close down again. It's kind of difficult. Sometimes some 
historians will get access and then they won't. Barriers to entry are many. And so there's also this language barrier and currently censorship is a big thing in China. So there are some amazing books on China where historians have spent years going through secret reports and detailed reports of meetings and journals. And I found them absolutely fascinating. I did the best I could to get the best information. But another thing is that many of these historical documents or older Chinese books were destroyed during a particular era in Chinese history. We'll talk about that. And so sadly, a lot of important written history was destroyed in the 1960s. And there's very little social history in China prior to the 1960s. So take that into account, into account as you listen while these episodes hope to make history approachable. Just please know that the history and the acquisition of this history is a complex story in and of itself. The third thing is that China is huge. I know that I don't have to probably say that to you, but in terms of landmass, it has almost exactly the same square mileage of the United States, but it has four times the amount of people living there. Roughly 1.4 billion people live in China. So in my research, due to the sheer population of China, China is able to do things that many other countries cannot do. So you'll learn that some of China's leaders, including one named Mao Zedong, he had great insensitivity to human loss. And you will hear deaths to the tune of like 45 million people. And it's just kind of like casually mentioned in these Chinese history books. It's really mind-blowing. And I just think the size of China and the population of China is something to keep in mind because it also has a very large labor force. And so that puts China in a very unique position in the world now and also in the world back in the day. So that's the third thing, population and just landmass size. The fourth thing is that China has regions just like the U.S. or any other nation has regions or states or provinces. And here in the U.S. where I live, it can be much too easy to wrap all of China up into one singular culture or one definitive idea of what a Chinese person is life, like. But the truth is that the cultures and accents vary from region to region, just like they do here in the United States or anywhere else. You can accurately describe China as having you know, less heterogeneous of a population than other large countries. However, it is more diverse than you might think. Sometimes in American media, Chinese people are perceived as either loyalists to the Communist Party or dissidents. And I think even this is too simplistic. There are regional divides just like there are in any country. A person that's raised in New York City, for example, is going to have a very different lived-in experience than someone that's raised in rural Ohio. Same with China. We often associate China with tea and rice in the big cities of Beijing or Shanghai or Hong Kong. But did you know that there are regions of China that are devoted to wheat and potatoes, and that some parts of China are cold and dry and others are wet and humid and have a monsoon season? In one of the books I read, it talked about how Chinese people, when they meet each other, they often ask, where are you from? Meaning the region that they're from. And immediately this kinship is born between people from similar regions. So if you learn nothing else from this particular episode, part one, let it be this. Chinese people are not all the same. Different dialects, different accents, different perspectives on life. And some of this history is is brutal, but I'm really excited to share it with you because I think it's also extremely important. So let's go the last 100-ish years in China. All right, just like Russia and Ukraine, we're going to go a little further back than 100 years because it gives way more context. Things done in the 1800s absolutely still affect the Chinese view of Western countries and also how Hong Kong came to be what it is. So it's important that we have that background. We, we don't actually know how old Chinese culture is. It is estimated that the earliest rulers were around 2100 to 1600 BC, 
which means that it's one of the oldest cultures that is still around today. For thousands of years, China was ruled by family dynasties. It's sad that I won't go into details on each dynasty, but essentially the emperor was seen as almost a deity in the sense that they believed that heaven gave each dynasty a mandate of heaven where it kind of gave, lent its support to the emperor. Heaven lent its support to the emperor. And so there was this connection between religion and the leader in the dynasty. Some fun facts are that around 125 BC, a Chinese explorer traveled all the way to Afghanistan and he made maps. And when he returned with these maps, the Chinese built the Silk Road, which led to international trade with other countries. Marco Polo, an Italian explorer, he traveled this road in the late 1200s and he wrote about it. And his writings sparked European interest in China because the Chinese had a lot of things that Europe and other nations did not have. They were very advanced. For example, the Chinese invented paper first and books like encyclopedias before any other culture that we know of. They also had the first printing press and the first known paper book was in Chinese back in the 18, oh, sorry, not 1800s, 800s AD. That's over 600 years before Europe had paper books. Uh, they also, the Chinese also invented gunpowder and fireworks. And in the 1300s through the 1700s, they likely had the most sophisticated and productive economy in the world. And the Chinese probably enjoyed a higher standard of living than any other people on the earth. But in the 1800s and early 1900s, where we're going to start, some issues began cropping up. And the first was relationships with the West. This was the age of imperialism, right? Where many European nations were essentially land-grabbing countries all over the place for their economic gain. Obviously, China was a place on the list for Great Britain, France, Portugal, Germany. Here was this massive nation that had expanded a lot in the 1700s was quite prosperous, had a lot of natural resources like silk, spices, tea, porcelain, and there was a high demand for these products in Europe. So the Qing dynasty, Q-I-N-G, pronounced Qing dynasty, was the ruling group at the time, the ruling family. So similar to the Romanov family in Russia, it had been a around a long time since the 1600s, and they were around until 1912. So some people call the Qing dynasty the Manchu dynasty because they were from Manchuria in the northeastern part of China. And even though European explorers and merchants started coming into China in the 1500s, the Qing dynasty wanted to limit their trade with Europe because they didn't want Europeans influencing their culture. And a lot of China's neighbors fell completely to foreign control. But this is interesting. China never fully did. It never became a full-fledged colony of the West. That's important. What the Qing Dynasty did was it made it so that foreign nations could only trade with China through one city in South China, and they could only trade through licensed Chinese merchants. So this obviously restricted trade. This was called the Canton system, since the one city was called Canton. And in the 1800s, Britain and France especially wanted the Canton system to end because French and British demand was very high for Chinese products. Britain was becoming a nation of tea drinkers. Everyone was drinking tea and they really wanted it from China. So they pressured the Qing dynasty to end this system and they didn't want to do that. And so the relationship became tense. And because China had a very old form of government, like to the tune of thousands of years old, it struggled with these relationships with Great Britain and France. And the cultural differences were pretty extreme. Plus, China was dealing with overpopulation and 
the dynasty had some corruption issues, which led to some internal fighting within the dynasty. Now, because the European nations loved the goods from China, there was a trade imbalance. Britain wanted all the tea in China, and the Chinese weren't super into goods from Europe. Like, they didn't really want their heavy wool fabrics and stuff. So we have this trade imbalance, and Britain is not happy about it. So at the same time, Britain has turned India into a British colony. And in India, they grow poppies. And they learned that what you could do is you could take the sap from poppies and you could turn it into opium. And opium was used for medicinal and sometimes recreational purposes in China for centuries before, but never at a super high level. Now, opium, as we know now, we know now that it is because it's still a drug used today and it has been outlawed in many countries. It's part of the opioid family. We know that opium is a depressant drug that causes euphoria and relaxation and pain relief, but it's also highly addictive and it can be manufactured into heroin. So when most people think of opium, they think of opioid drugs or heroin. At the time, not all of this information was known, but it was known that opium was addictive. And so to counteract the trade imbalance, traders from Britain began to market opium in China. And U.S. merchants actually followed suit. These traders hoped that opium would prove as addictive to the Chinese as tea had proven for the British. And this is where the story gets pretty brutal. This is not Britain's finest moment here at all. Britain starts paying for its tea with opium even though it was illegal. The Chinese government saw the danger in this and prohibits the sale, but the British were pretty rotten and they did all that they could to increase trade, including bribing officials and helping Chinese people smuggle it into the interior of China. They would give innocent victims free samples of opium. Yeah, basically trying to addict the country. And by 1820, the trade for opium grew dramatically and millions of Chinese people became addicted to opium and it was a huge problem causing serious social disruption. People would do anything to get access to this drug. And so what happened? The silver begins flowing out of China to pay for the opium because the demand for opium becomes so high, completely flips the trade imbalance just as Britain hoped it would. And the Qing introduced strict laws against buying and selling opium, but it didn't really matter. The tensions mounted, the Westerners insisted that free trade was a God-given right, and that the Qing dynasty were barbarians that were denying them this free right, and the Qing were angry at the Westerners for being villains and, you know, not, not doing what the local laws were saying, and they were bringing this dangerous substance into the country, and it was a, a big conflict. And there were some people back in Britain who spoke very openly about how wrong it was to sell opium to the Chinese. It was a very complicated issue. And the first opium war broke out in 1840 and it went to 1842. And at the end of 1842, the Chinese officials at gunpoint had to sign an agreement called the Treaty of Nanjing. And it gave the British a few things. It gave them a great deep water port of Hong Kong. It gave them a lot of money from the Chinese it ended the Canton system, so it now now China had to provide five new treaty treaty ports where British merchants and families could live. It also made it so that in those ports, the British citizens did not have to obey Chinese laws. And it also made China make Great Britain the most favored nation, meaning that any rights that any foreign countries gained in China automatically applied to Great Britain too. And this was the first in a series of unequal treaties between China and Western nations that led to bitterness and embarrassment for the Chinese. So like, woof, right? This greatly affected the Chinese view of their leaders of the Qing dynasty. 
And it also had a side effect of allowing Christian missionaries into the country. And so in the end, it just caused a lot of political factions with the Chinese people because they start they stopped trusting their leaders as much because they obviously signed this very unequal treaty. And then China had a second opium war um, from 1856 to 1860, and both the British and the French were involved in this one. And they actually captured Beijing and the Chinese emperor fled to Manchuria and his brother signed another unequal treaty. This one opened 11 more ports and it increased Christian missionary work and it legalized opium. And the Chinese put up a good fight with you know, not implementing these agreements perfectly. But overall, most Chinese people felt that the Qing dynasty was not doing its job right. It was losing its ability to govern well. And as for the opium, the cost to China in terms of lives and addiction and money, it was enormous. And the economic effects lasted for decades, long after opium was no longer distributed. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And so, like I said, the Opium Wars were the first kind of wound that led to what is now referred to China as the century of humiliation. China was defeated in two wars, and then it signed unequal treaties, and this showed weakness. And that all led to many rebellions and uprisings within the country. There is a phrase in China still today that says, if you are backward, you will take a beating. And Chinese students learn this today, that if you let yourself become weak or backward, I say in quotes, you'll become vulnerable to other countries. And this idea dates all the way back to the opium wars and the Chinese way of thinking that they do not want to be humiliated again. So that's one major thing that happened in the 1800s that still is important to know today. At the time that all of this is happening with opium, Chinese population is also expanding very quickly. The population doubled in 150 years. So land rights were changing and arable land was all used up. And so farmers were getting smaller, smaller parcels for their children. And there were natural disasters and all these issues with local leaders getting more and more control because the Qing dynasty was weakening due to the, all of this foreign presence. And so basically the country was ripe for rebellions. And there were four massive rebellions that happened in the late 1800s. And some of them are wild stories, like crazy stories. If you want to read about a wild Chinese rebellion, you can look up the Taiping Rebellion. It 
actually killed 20 to 70 million people. But basically, these rebellions were like full-scale wars by our standards today. And they greatly weakened the emperor's power because these rebels would take control of large portions of China. And likewise, during this time, Russia starts claiming lands in China's far, far west, and England starts accessing major rivers, and France goes into northern Vietnam, and Japan starts making claims over Korea and northeast China, and then China and Japan have a war over Korea, and China loses. This is called the First Sino-Japanese War. And the defeat against Japan is also humiliating to China, and it leads to some reforms from the dynasty. The Japanese were very imperialistic in China. It was not just Western nations who wanted a piece of the pie. For many Chinese, the actually J Japan was more of an enemy to them than the West. But during this time, the island of Taiwan, which had been under the Qing dynasty for hundreds of years, fell under the J Japanese. And so the Japanese rule over the island of Taiwan until 1945. During this same time, China also went through the Boxer Rebellion, this was where groups of young men started attacking Chinese Christians and foreign missionaries in northern China. The desire was to get rid of Christianity in China. They felt like the Christians had brought in many of the issues that had come into the country. And so many Chinese Christians were killed. Foreigners were killed. Pretty horrific stories of murder. And in the end, an international force of soldiers from eight different countries, mostly Western countries, Great Britain, U.S., France, Germany, Russia, Japan, a few others, they had to come in and take down the Boxer Rebellion, and they ended up looting national treasures and again humiliating the Chinese from the Chinese perspective, and then made them sign again an unequal treaty. So it's interesting when you talk about the Boxer Rebellion, the West and China view the situation very differently. But I share it because the Boxer Rebellion cast this long shadow over Chinese interaction with foreign countries and also with Christianity that still is in place today. So Chinese officials still refer to it when they feel like they're being pushed around. So overall, this was a demanding time in China, and China had more foreign presence in its affairs than it wanted. And the more and more Chinese people were worried that China was going to get sliced up like a melon, is how they call it. So leaders began to disagree over how to respond to all of these challenges. And they saw themselves, the Chinese, as a highly developed civilization. But with all of these foreign interactions and pressures, they weren't being treated as equals by the Europeans. And so some Chinese leaders felt, let's just go all traditional, reject all Western culture. Other leaders were like, no, let's adopt some Western technology, but let's keep Chinese cultures and beliefs. And let's just, that'll appease the young people, right? If we accept some Western technology, but we still keep our culture. And other people were like, no, no, let's just reject Chinese culture completely. Let's fully Westernize. And even for a little while, the dynasty tried to modernize, tried to reform in its medicine and science and industry. But at the time, the country was still 90% rural, and it really wasn't enough for these people that were growing unhappy with how China was turning out. Like I said, there were a lot of different factions within the Chinese on what China should look like. But in 1911, there was a revolution where basically troops uprose and the last emperor, who was actually a child, he abdicated his throne and something called the Republic of China, the ROC, was formed. And this is important to know because it is still around, only on the island of Taiwan, but we'll talk about that in another episode. 
So this Republic of China was founded by a group called the Nationalists. And generally, the Nationalists were more democratic viewing than any of the other groups that were trying to control China at the time. But peace was not a thing. Even though the ROC was in place, people were still very divided ideologically on what China should look like. And this first nationalist president of the Republic of China was called Sun Yat-sen. And he actually wasn't president for very long. Within a year, a warlord came and took him out of office. Um, Sun Yat-sen stayed, stayed living, but he was not ruling China at the time. The interesting thing is that Sun Yat-sen is still generally seen as a hero, both in Taiwan and in the China that we know today. And that's because even though he founded a nationalist democratic-like party, he's special to Chinese because they see him as overthrowing the Qing dynasty and launching China into a new era. So like I said, Sun Yat-sen doesn't stay president for very long. This warlord comes in, takes over. And then for a little while, China is actually ran by a bunch of military strongmen. We'll call them warlords. And this era was where strongmen had their own armies and they effectively controlled different parts of the country. There really wasn't a central government. In fact, some of these warlords were addicted to opium. It was not a really great time in history. And Sun Yat-sen, meanwhile, is dreaming of regaining control of the whole country because these warlords are working with these foreign powers, especially Japan, and the nationalists and other groups do not want this. So during this time, World War I is also happening. And even with this warlord era, China sends help to the British, the French, and the Russians to provide Chinese labor. So actually, China would repair tanks and transport supplies. And in fact, lots of the trenches of World War I were dug by Chinese laborers. They never actually sent troops, but they played a huge role in helping them win World War I. So the Chinese were really upset when after World War I, during the Treaty of Versailles, parts of China that had once been controlled by Germany, they were slotted to go to Japan instead of back to China. And so Chinese intellectuals and students start protesting this. This is in 1919. They're like, no way. We have been through it, right? This is not okay. And so there's this huge rise in nationalism that happens in 1919. And this is the turning point for China. This is a critical time because students are watching the Russian Revolution happen with Lenin, right? And so many Chinese revolutionaries, they begin turning at this time to Marxist ideas. So as one book said, the Russian Revolution was crucial to Chinese activists, not just because of the appeal to its ideals of social equality, but because it occurred in a country that was also a latecomer to industrialization and seen as backwards. So China sees Russia as this country that's like them. And they're going through this Russian Revolution in 1917 all the way to 1921, right? So they're watching this go down. Around this time, 1920, 1921, the Chinese Communist Party is born, also known as the CCP, still called the CCP today, Chinese Communist Party. Simply put, there were now three major ideological ideas in China at the time. There's the communists, the nationalists, and the warlords who have power. The communists, that's self-explanatory. They wanted a command economy. So keep this in mind, you know, Lenin is rising in popularity in Russia at the same time. The nationalists were more Western focused. They wanted more democracy, a more capitalist economy. And then there's the warlords who had power at the time, different groups ruling China. Now in the early 1920s, 
these two groups, the communists and the nationalists, actually created a united front to get rid of these warlords and to fight foreigners. And so they joined together. And more and more Chinese people began joining the nationalists and the communists. At this time, a man named named Chiang Kai-shek comes onto the scene. In 1926, he leads a group of both nationalists and communists as a military leader, and he kicks out many warlords and he takes back Beijing. Sun Yat-sen dies and Chiang Kai-shek actually takes his position as the head of the nationalists. Now, this is a really important man to know his name. He, what he ended up doing is in, the, in late 1926, he starts to feel like this united front or joining with the communists was a mistake. And in April 1927, he carries out what's called the White Terror or the Shanghai Massacre, which basically was a huge purge of CCP or Chinese Communist Party members in Shanghai. So what Chang would do is he would imprison and kill some of the very people who had helped him conquer the warlords just a few years earlier. They would violently suppress the communists, opening fire on groups of workers and students. And it's unknown how many of these people died during these massacres. But Chiang Kai-shek becomes this president of the Republic of China. China has a legal government. But unfortunately, Chiang Kai-shek spent most of his time trying to root out the communists. And over time, this nationalist party that claimed to be pro-democratic actually failed to affect many of the changes that it claimed it would. And the ROC, the Republic of China, stayed in power until 1949. But during that entire time, it was in a civil war with the communists. Civil war was on. So again, many of its goals were unrealized. Now, let's go back a little bit to, and let's talk about a man named Mao Zedong. So we know Chiang Kai-shek. We know Sun Yat-sen. Let's talk about Mao Zedong. So Mao Zedong was a child of peasants. But he went to a school where he came in contact with revolutionary ideas. And he became a soldier until 1912, when the Republic of China was established. Then he kind of floated around and he found Marxism and eventually became a committed communist. So Mao actually joined the Nationalist Party during the warlord years, even though he was a communist. He would work for the Nationalist Party, um, but he was bothered by their view of peasants. And he felt like this rural world of China was actually... China's regeneration. He thought that's where the money is. That is where we need to focus. And so when Chiang Kai-shek begins purging communists from the party and from China, Mao was within this group of people. And the communists were almost entirely wiped out during this purge, but not quite, not quite. Some communist members would avoid death because they would operate these underground cells within cities. And Chiang would try to round up these groups and destroy them. But in the end, to escape this death from the nationalists, the communists began what is now called the Long March. And it's this long journey that they took from the south of China up to the north where they felt they would be safer from the nationalists. So they traveled thousands of miles over crazy treacherous terrain. Like this is 86,000 people traversing 6,000 miles in just over a year. They crossed 18 mountain ranges, 24 rivers, and it is estimated that only 8,000 of the people who began the trip completed it because they mostly died of illness and exhaustion or military clashes with the nationalists. So this means that 95% of the communists who went on the long march didn't make it. This happened in 1934. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. 
But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Now, what they did when they got to the North was they created a communist group and they grew in the North. If the Long March had failed, if all of the communists had died, we would have a very different China today. But instead, the Long March had a very significant outcome. That man, Mao Zedong, was on the trek. And during this year of the Long March, he consolidated his power and his position as a major, you know, very important leader in the Communist Party. Much, much more on him coming up. But this Long March was a huge deal for the communists, united them together. The ones who lived really became united. And so later on in this war, as the communists began to take over the country, you'll see that many of the leaders were Long Marchers. So they had reached the North, they created a society where everyone was equal, and they lived like that. This civil war between the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party and the Nationalists lasted for roughly 18 to 22 years. There was one hold moment when they had to join again together to create a second united front against the Japanese during World War II. They really both did not want the Japanese to take over more parts of China because... Japan did have some parts of the time. So they were, again, willing to work together to fight the Japanese in the Second Sino-Japanese War. And millions of Chinese during, died during this time, starvation, combat. But when the Japanese were defeated in 1945, the island of Taiwan, which had been under their control since 1895, was given back to China. And so the Republic of China practiced jurisdiction over Taiwan during after 1945. So after World War II ended, the revolution with the nationalists and communists began again almost immediately. They joined forces to fight Japan, and then they're back at it again. Mao Zedong led the Red Army, or the communists, and the Soviet Union backed them up. And Chiang Kai-shek led the nationalists with the U.S. backing them up. So neither the Soviet Union nor the U.S. were actually very strong-minded about it. In fact, a U.S. diplomat went to China in 1945 and 1946, and he just wrote a scathing review of both sides. But for the Chinese... The tide began to turn toward the communists because during World War II, 
the communists actually began to be seen as more devoted to the Chinese cause than the nationalists. They felt like the nationalist government was becoming corrupt, that Chiang Kai-shek was so focused on getting rid of communists that he wasn't focused on foreigners invading. And so they were kind of tired. A lot of Chinese people became tired of the nationalists infighting and corruption, inflation. And they also felt like Chiang Kai-shek was getting too friendly with the United States. And so they joined the Communist Party. And the communists promised them that if they won this war against the nationalists, that they would redistribute land, which obviously majority are peasants, so they're very interested in this. The Communist Party also championed the interests of the common people. And the Chinese just wanted peace and liberation. They had just been through the warlord era, foreign involvement, world wars, a civil war that had been paused for a world war. So as they fought against the nationalists and the communists began gaining more ground, again, there were horrible stories about the Chinese civil war. Horrible means being used on both sides against each other. I could go into detail, but I won't. Basically, the communist party begins to take control. And it's not, again, not a peaceful experience. And in 1949, the communists gain control of mainland China. And they establish the People's Republic of China, PRC. This is what China is known today. Within days, Mao proclaims the People's Republic of China, 1949. And the first country to support it is the Soviet Union and its communist bloc. So it recognizes it as a legitimate government of China. And Chiang Kai-shek and the leadership of the Republic of China, the nationalists, they leave China and they go to the island of Taiwan. So since 1949 until today, Taiwan and the People's Republic of China, or China as we know it right now, they've had a standoff. Today, Taiwan claims to be independent of China, but China considers it to be part of China. And it's very complicated, and we'll talk about it more in the Taiwan episode. But this is why you see news headlines regularly about China flying over Taiwan and it seems likely that China will try to take back the island of Taiwan. Okay, so we have now covered 1800s until 1949 when the communists take over China at the end of the Chinese Civil War between the communists and the nationalists. So we're going to end there. We've covered a ton of history, but I just want to share some of my major takeaways from this research and from learning about this. The first is that I found it very interesting that China had so many varied perspectives on what China should look like. And China had such a long history of having one family rule it. And then it had this period of time from 1912 to 1949, where it was either ruled by warlords or by the nationalists. And from my research, both had corruption. And so we see that China had a very, very brief introduction to the idea of democracy. And that brief introduction was not very good because the Nationalist Party was in wars the entire time. So naturally, the Chinese history with democracy has very little positive history associated. We also see that foreign interest and foreign influence in China during this time played a huge role in China's foreign policy for years. Generally, China was able to keep from being a European colony, unlike many other nations, but they were humiliated by Western alliances. And so within the Chinese culture, this humiliation is something that they want to avoid again. And decisions are made from that. I also think that this sets the stage very well for the next two episodes, because what we're going to cover in these next two episodes are China under Mao Zedong, uh, when he was chairman, 
and then into China until what it is currently like today. And there is a lot of stuff in this episode, but I think that this kind of sets the stage for why things happen the way they happen. And those two episodes are available now. So I'm going to leave it at that. Thank you for being here. If you learned something new, please share, please review. I appreciate it so much. And let's go out and make the world a little wiser. 